Hello. So you're about to listen to a conversation I've just had with Randall Rouser. Um, Randall's been on some amazing podcasts and uh, yeah, YouTube channels such as Unbelievable and Caption Christianity. Um, most recently, he was on The Graceful Atheist. Um, you should definitely go check that out. I'll make sure there's a link to that conversation because it's a great one with David over there. And I have a lot of time for Randall. He has an ability to answer questions in a way that surprises me and his openness to the reality that we can't know everything and we can't know for sure and there are questions that deserve answers that we might not have answers to and that's really rare for a christian to be willing to come onto a show like this and to share like that um as you can hear in this podcast like i do not know what i'm talking about most of the time um i'm still learning lots about sort of plato and aristotle and morality and all these sorts of things and and, and that's what this podcast is about it's a place for me to ask questions and to journey things through openly and honestly so that you guys can hopefully learn a little bit along the way as well and yeah we can journey this thing together and see where it goes um just a note on the audio quality towards the end of the episode i end up having to use the zoom recording that i was taking whilst talking to randall because for some reason garage band decided to quit halfway through um so yeah i managed to capture most of it but yeah towards the very end uh, the audio switches from um higher quality to a slightly lower quality but apologies if that's noticeable um anyway enjoy this one welcome to when belief dies a podcast honestly reflecting on faith religion and life this podcast is all about listening we want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination, and I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and today I'm joined by Randall Rouser. Randall, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be with you, Sam. So I've um, I've kind of um, read a few of your books and um, when I was a Christian, I um, I ran an apologetics book club uh, and we read the one about the uh, scuba diving, it says scuba diver and Swedish atheist, I forget the title precisely. Um, Right. But found that a really interesting take on uh, sort of how a, a atheist would be in a coffee shop, uh, potentially reading like, you know, The God Delusion or something, and how, how a Christian could come in and kind of have a, an open, honest dialogue with that person about the doubts that they held about faith or religion or whatever you want to say. And um, yeah, from, from that, I, I just got a real sense that you were someone who was willing to engage with, with both sides honestly and to, and to reflect upon yeah, those positions, essentially. I just thought it'd be really cool to kind of just hear for the, for, for the first little bit, um, a bit about your story, a bit about kind of why you believe in God and kind of what, what got you to the point of, of having these sorts of dialogues almost in your head, but also on paper. It's a really fascinating uh, exchange. Yeah, well, of course, the downside is the book wasn't uh, good enough to keep you <laughs> from your change in belief. But, <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that it was uh, good enough to, to warrant an invite. Um, so in terms of my own story, I mean, that's, uh, would bring me, I mean, actually, I wrote a whole book about that called What's So Confusing About Grace. So I had a, I was raised in a Christian home, and my parents were come from a conversionist tradition. 
where it's sort of, you need to know the day you were saved in order to be saved. So they wanted to get me to make a personal commitment, which I did when I was about five years old. Uh, but then I, you know, grew up, had a lot of interest in apologetics, but with a, I would sort of call it a fundagelical upbringing where there's elements of fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And so among those things would be, it would be very dispensational, which means you sort of believe a particular interpretation of the book of Revelation and some other biblical prophecy text, you kind of have an imminent expectation of the end of the world and it's very pessimistic. It's gonna be all kind of fire and brimstone, but you look for a secret rapture that will save you from all that. So I lived with that imminent expectation, very much anti-evolution. This is back in the eighties, early nineties still maybe. Uh, and then I went to university in, in 93 and, you know, just uh, pardon the pun, but evolution, a slow evolution of my own beliefs. And so one after another, I began to rethink them. Uh, so I, I would say I become a theistic evolutionist about 96, about 1995. I had a debate in university where I defended annihilationism, which was at the time, this sort of provocative view that people don't suffer forever in separation from God and hell, but rather they're destroyed at some point. So I defended that and then became convinced of it out of a devil's advocate experience. Uh, and then I've just changed many other views over the years. Uh, the most recent probably is a very significant. I have a book coming out hopefully in a month or two, although by the time this podcast is out, it'll probably be out as well. And that's on um, biblical violence and sort of my take on how to process biblical violence. And so this has been, while I'm still a Christian, it's, 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 I did not get locked into some position early on and then not change. I've been developing and changing for the last 40 plus years. Uh, why am I Christian? I mean, I mean, in, in one sense, there's the demographic, sociological, this is how I was raised and it helps me make sense of the world. And I've never seen a sufficient reason to sort of reject it. So, uh, but I have constantly seen reasons to tweak and revise how I think about things. Uh, if I were only given the option of young earth creationism, for example, I don't know where I would be now, right? Because I, I would think that there's such onerous problems with that way of looking at the world. So I think that it's, it's good to come back to what mere Christianity is, although it's not always easy to define, but to be reminded that the minimal claims, the core claims of Christianity are more modest than people often assume. And so sometimes the catalysts by which people end up leaving the faith are not really sufficient in and of themselves to question mere Christianity. And that's been my experience. That's incredible. Have you, have you heard of, um, of spiral dynamics before? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay, cool. Um, no, that's fine. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very new to it as well. Um, I think so Rob Bell just did a podcast, um, kind of like December time, um, which was all about this kind of idea of, um, of me, we and everyone, it kind of looks at how, um, how opinions change within a framework of belief, but you can still hold on to the belief, but how they, they shift and morph. Um, it's a really, really fascinating idea. I think it's starting to become quite a big um, topic, especially within the sort of um, deconstruction, deconversion, kind of shifting viewpoints, um, landscape that we kind of see very, very prominent within the world today, kind of people struggling with with beliefs and kind of you have to believe this or else you don't believe in God and people not believing this anymore thinking, well, does that mean I shouldn't believe in God? And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely definitely a, a challenging area for a lot of people. Okay, so I mean, how do you how do you then come to kind of teaching people about this sort of stuff? Because obviously you, 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 
you very much reside within a position where you're um, influencing and teaching and exploring these sorts of things with your kind of students and, and, and other people that you engage with. Um, how do you take people on this sort of journey to kind of not help, I guess, or almost keep them within a faith? Or do you kind of just let that happen as it happens? Like, are you, are you trying to come at your kind of teaching or lecturing or anything through any sort of lenses? How do you, how do you make that work? Uh, so, I, I mean, I, at a seminary, I, I like to stress that my role is not to be the guardian of true doctrine. Nice. And so I am not, although technically I teach at a North American Baptist denominational school, denominational identities and affiliations have become somewhat less important over time. This still may be the go-to school for some churches and that they'll send their congregants here who are looking for ministerial opportunities in the future. But those things are kind of becoming less significant as we go on. Um, and anyway, from my perspective, because I've always had a diverse range of students, um, my, my, my point as a seminary professor is to say, we're taking a step back from the community of faith. We'll let your, your pastors worry about the orthodoxy of your opinions. What I will do is try to guide you through a new deepened self-awareness as to what your opinions actually are and to understand the orthodoxy of those opinions relative to certain traditional accepted standards in the church. So for example, my students in systematic theology, a two course sequence of doctrine, they have to produce a sort of statement of belief about a 10 page paper after each course. And when I grade that paper, I will identify places where they've either where they're confused or appear to be or where they're contradictory of their own opinions elsewhere, or I'll point out where they're endorsing opinions that are unorthodox. But none of those are points at which they lose marks, because I'm not here to give you an A for orthodoxy. I'm here to give you an A because you can artic articulate what you believe and explain why you believe it. And if you end up dissenting from some mainstream orthodox view, I mean, I may lament that to some degree insofar as I believe it's an important thing you got wrong, but I'm not there to grade that. Uh, you can worry about your, your church community for that. And so I think that that's a healthy way to think about what a seminary should be doing, should be equipping people with, with giving them the space, the distance from the church to think through what they do believe and why. really helpful i know so I, I i went to bible college did um did, did three years at a assemblies of god pentecostal bible college uh, here 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 in the uk um i really really enjoyed it it was like an amazing experience mm. um but it very much was a case of like if you begin to have doubts or anything you've got to kind of ask is this the right place for you because it's all about going into ministry like the whole premise of the whole thing is we are equipping you to go out and to make disciples essentially which is great and also extremely challenging because there were a fair few people who began to read you know Bart Ehrman or or whatever um yeah. even even sort of like Marcus Borg level um kind of theology which um just just for the listener like Marcus Borg is is, is was he's now passed away but he was very much a Christian but kind of believed in this sort of um mythical Jesus rather than the kind of the physical resurrection of Jesus and um him, him and N.T. Wright had a great, wrote, wrote a great book on it called Two Visions. But anyway, so even if you kind of like assented to the sort of Marcus Borg position, you'd be kind of definitely challenged and things. So, so I mean, was, has, has it been a case that that sort of position's changed over the last 10 years or so? Or has, has that been something that's been very much at the heart of how you, how you teach right from the get-go? My philosophy has always been to 
introduce and explain different positions and why people hold them and to let the students figure out what they're going to believe. Now, we of course have to keep in mind the danger of the myth of neutrality. So this, we can delude ourselves if we're not careful into thinking that we can somehow present things apart from any contextualized commitment. And I think here of, of a kind of well-known book for those written about close to 50 years ago now called Decide for Yourself by Gordon Clark. So he was a Baptist theologian. And so he lays out this book where the, he's going to guide the reader to figure out what they believe on all these doctrines ranging from revelation and doctrine of God through creation, fall, redemption, and so on. But then he's the one who's in each chapter, he selects, these are the relevant biblical texts you should be looking at. And these are the questions you should ask and now figure it out for yourself. And of course, that's not a neutral position because he's already decided what are the categories? He's decided what are the questions? What are the texts to look at? He's already decided from a sort of biblicist perspective that we're going to focus on a, almost a sola scriptura in the sense of nothing but scripture, uh, not consult creeds, not consult tradition, experience, and so on. And so it's very much not a neutral view. You're not deciding for yourself. You're being led along by Gordon Clark. And I would be naive if I didn't think that the way I present things is not informed in all sorts of ways by who I am and my context and upbringing and natural aptitude, et cetera. So you hold those things in tension. You try to be aware of it to the extent you are, but nonetheless, I do and have always been committed to a pedagogy, a philosophy of teaching where I try to bring the student to develop their own convictions rather than just adopt mine. And I love students criticizing my views in papers if they do it well. I, I'm not thin-skinned and I don't take offense to that. I think that that just shows, you know, an engaged mind, somebody who's taking this seriously. So I respect that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that seems to be such a passion of yours and something that I, I, I admire very much as well when you see somebody who's able to go, okay, we, what I believe you're saying, it's almost like still manning, right? It's basically, I think this is what you're saying. I'm going to try to explain why this is wrong after presenting your view in the best light that I can to make sure it's really clear that we're talking about the same thing. Um, and it's something that it's definitely been missing from conversations. I think I think very much within the last few years, like this whole still manning and straw manning things become a bit more um, well known, which has been really helpful. But, you know, especially going back five years ago from certain debates and stuff, you definitely see a lot of people presenting things in a very, uh, oh, you just believe in this, so I'm going to kind of rip this apart, but actually it's got nothing to do with what you're actually talking about it's almost like a red herring or something that doesn't quite doesn't quite fit in um mm. okay that's really interesting and and I, I just i feel like i should push this a little bit more so let's just see what this goes but um it'd be really interesting to kind of get your take then so if if someone was to read something like um i don't know misquoting jesus by bart ehrman or something like that um, and begin to kind of have these kind of um, deep-rooted questions about the new testament and the authority of it and how it was written when it was written who actually wrote the words and what do they mean and stuff how how do you begin to to help students or, or even people that come to you on like a more pastoral personal level to to begin to so so you use my own example and you can kind of explain it from that so i would i would very much believe that the bible was the literal word of god and then as i began to see that there could be you know, scribal errors and we can't know for certain that this book was written by who claims to have written it and you know all these books or whatever um and and it slowly kind of unwound itself to the point where i was like this, this it doesn't seem to be a firm enough foundation for me to believe in the resurrection. When that happened, it obviously all fell apart. Um, I've been on this journey of kind of discovery of actually trying to work out what, what I can and can't know about the Bible. Um, so if someone kind of is beginning that journey, like how do you kind of talk to them about these sorts of challenges that are very clear these days within the academic world around the New Testament? Well, so several things. First of all, we always have to go back to assumptions. 
So if we're going to say the Bible is the literal word of God, we need to push a pause on that and say, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to say the Bible is the literal word of God? Um, and I think very often people start off on a slippery slope of questioning that leads to apostasy, to use an old term, or deconversion, because they've started off with a particularly problematic definition of a concept like that. So, for example, if you people have concepts that they assume it excludes human authorial errancy. So, in other words, the human author speaking out of the human voice and human intention of that author cannot say anything that is errant, mistaken within the work, because then it would not be part of that would falsify the claim that it is God's word. And sometimes you'll actually get people arguing this think very simple-minded way I don't want to sound condescending here but it really is this idea that well if it's false and God included in his bible he's lying and God cannot lie therefore you cannot have any errors in the human authorial voice I think it's just deeply mistaken and wrong and I certainly talk a fair bit about that in my upcoming book so we do have to get back to definitions as to what things mean and I think once once you do that then you can maybe prevent someone from starting off on that trajectory. Now, the other part though you raised and you referred to, to Bart Ehrman. I mean, I have a lot of criticisms of Ehrman. I, I think he's done a lot of great stuff, of course, but he's got, a, I mean, he's got a lot of sort of polemically think, misleading things he says as well. For example, when he talks about, there are more variant readings between the documents we have, the, the early manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. Well, sure, that's a manifestation of the fact that we have 20,000 Greek and Latin manuscripts, and you're going to get variant readings between them. But, but by that reasoning, if you had five manuscripts, then you'd be in better shape because you'd have fewer variant readings between them. I mean, it's just a completely misleading way of thinking about things. So that what is actually a textual richness in the tradition, Ehrman turns it on its ear into something negative and bad. And I think that is disingenuous. There's a nice book that rebuts him in that popular book called Misquoting Scripture for people who are interested in that. But I do take Bart Ehrman's bigger point. And the bigger point there is that these are conversations often that are being had in seminaries that are not filtering down to the lady in the pew. And I don't think that you do anybody favors when you do that, because then you set them up for crises of faith when they suddenly hear and learn about things that they had no clue about. So if, if you know that they, they assume that Moses wrote the Torah or that there must have been a global flood and you never raise that as an issue, you say, oh, I'm just, I'm just not going to go there. Well, then what happens when they encounter that by reading an article in Time magazine and that raises all these questions? It just makes the clergy look dishonest at that point particularly if they knew all along that Moses didn't write the Torah and there wasn't a global flood. So I think we do have to be working as church leaders toward having honest conversations with congregants. And otherwise you're setting them up potentially for an unnecessary crisis of faith. And I guess there's two ways I want to take this. We'll just start with one and see where it goes. Um, with 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 this idea then that the Bible these days, we, we can view it through a different lens and we might have, say, 
400 years ago, for instance, like how, how we viewed the Bible back then would have been very different. Um, and obviously, as, as things progressed in 200, 400 years time, how we view things, what we know will also have changed and, and very much moved on. Um, do, can you foresee or do you think that there is a point when we get where we actually not necessarily scrap the Bible and think that's fair, but we actually kind of really begin to ask questions about the, the, the deep truths that have to be true within the bible um so you know the actual physical resurrection of jesus or um even god coming coming down in the first place or um, these 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 sorts of things like we get to a point where actually these things are themselves being questioned then we kind of get this 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 issue around actually what what can we actually believe then to be true um so obviously yeah so kind of just recapping 400 years ago we obviously believed very much that you know moses would have literally walked out of egypt and we wouldn't have been able to you know count the number of israelites that were with him and now we know you know it taken them like something like seven days to cross the um the, the the jordan if they went exactly the way they went and all this sort of stuff so we kind of know from like just sheer maths that these things don't quite make sense um so how do we kind of yeah how how how, how do we retain the things that need to be retained to have a faith as we begin to sort of almost unravel the bible bit by bit um so first of all i uh, unravel the bible a bit by bit i think i'd rather put that that unraveling particular errant understandings of the bible bit by bit rather than the bible per se sure. yeah, yeah. in itself i think one thing that we can we should do is so like people often think and there's a lot of truth in this but that there is a sort of this pre-critical stage and then you have the critical stage that begins with the rise of historical biblical criticism, people like Spinoza in the 17th century, and then it really takes off in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then we're sort of moving into a post-critical phase uh, in the latter half of the 20th, early 21st century. And, and that's a nice sort of capsule summary. But, but even that, that's very misleading in a lot of ways, because there were many different ways of reading the Bible throughout history. Uh, and there have been ways, different ways, biblical violence, which I've been looking at extensively is a good example of that. So there are many people in the early church, like Origen, who quite explicitly denied that Joshua should be read historically, right? that he said, no, Joshua should be read as an exploration of the human soul, seeking mm. sanctification, following God. And so he interprets everything allegorically. And he does so in large part because he's driven by a recognition that there's a fundamental, fundamentally irreconcilable nature of the violence of the text and the call of Christian discipleship to love God and neighbor. And there are many other Christians like that. In fact, Origen's reading was so influential that it really precluded Christians en masse from appealing to Joshua to justify the medieval crusades. Uh, the Crusades, rather, were justified typically with respect to appealing to Maccabees rather than to Joshua. And so it's just a reminder that there is actually a diversity, even in the so-called pre-critical phase, over how the Bible should be interpreted. Augustine's famous, quote-unquote, literal commentary on Genesis is another obvious example where he's he gives all sorts of options, including allegorical ones, to interpret Genesis chapter 1. So we do have those resources in the history of the church. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is is that uh, there's a core concept in Christianity of progressive revelation. And I mean, this is just in the DNA of Christianity because it begins in a polytheistic context. The Jews eventually become henotheists. They believe there's one supreme God, eventually become monotheists, and then we become Trinitarian monotheists. So that's just an example of how there's this growing understanding of the doctrine of God. And we don't worry about that. We recognize Christianity is a historical religion, and there's a over time, this growing fuller understanding of who God is and how he's been revealed. When we come to reject 
the Ptolemaic theory of the universe on which theology was grafted for 1500 years, yeah, there's some, some stormy waters for a while, but by the late 1600s, we're sort of getting over that. It's the same thing with evolution in the 19th century. Uh, and what we do then is in retrospect to say, okay, this can, insofar as it's true, it becomes part of God's wider progressive revelation because all truth is God's truth. And we now reinterpret Christianity in light of that, which we believe to be true. That's just the discipline of systematic theology itself. So, so I think that this is just an ongoing process and I'm not threatened by that. It, it's always been that way. It was in that way in the third and fourth centuries when Christians were interpreting Christianity in light of middle and late Platonism as well. Last thing I'll say uh, is, is that we, we do have this thing that we'll all struggle with, which is that Christianity is an essentially contested concept. So that there is no unanimity as to the precise application of it. You mentioned Marcus Borg, denies a historical resurrection, uh, believes in a sort of spiritual resurrection, which he's not the first person out of a Lutheran background to do that. Boltzmann did the same thing. It's, it's really actually part of a Lutheran theology that it can allow for this idea for several reasons, which I won't bother to go into here. But is, uh, is he still, was he a Christian? In, I mean, N.T. Wright, as you note, thought he should be. He thought we should count Marcus Borg as a Christian. Others will disagree. They think, no, if you deny historical resurrection, that's not just idiosyncratic. That's beyond the pale. People can quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to that end. Um, so Christians will disagree about that. I mean, there are Christians who think that old earth creationists, let alone the theistic evolutionists, they're not Christians. So we'll have those disagreements, but you have those disagreements in any large diverse community. The Christian community is not distinct in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, are, are you happy if I just keep pushing into this? Because this is really, really good. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So the next thing that I want to ask then is, is, is what do you think makes somebody a Christian or would somebody have to believe in order to be a Christian then? Do, do you have like a set, obviously not potentially a, a set list of doctrines, but are there any kind of, kind of core fundamental beliefs then that you would say, these are the tenets of Christianity and you need to believe these to be included? Well, there's a, an ambiguity in your question. I'd like to disambiguate it. Sure. So uh, at least I, I think many people could hear an ambiguity there. And so it's the ambiguity between soteriology or salvation and ecclesiology or church. So on the one end, you can say, well, what do you have to believe or do to be saved? On the other end, you can say, what do you have to believe or do to be a part of this community? And those are two different things. Uh, Jesus, in, in his parable of the sheep and the goats, talks about how there are people who thought they were sheep that will be shocked to find out they're goats. There are people who presumably didn't realize they were sheep because they were saying, Where, when did we do these things? And yet they found out that they were doing those things. And so they're the insiders. So the kingdom of God comes and sort of turns upside down often who we think the insiders and outsiders are. That should chasten anybody in terms of having really confident attempts to map soteriology or salvation onto a visible community. So that uh, you have to be part of my community in order to be saved. So with that in mind, um, I am certainly an inclusivist, a definitely a hopeful inclusivist, which is a very common view today. It's the official view of the Roman Catholic Church. Many evangelicals hold it as well. So I would not stipulate uh, what one must believe in order to be saved. Uh, 
Now that actually came up. Actually, I, I posted a tweet on this a couple of days ago. That came up a, several years ago when I was teaching here at the seminary. And someone is challenging my orthodoxy in teaching here because they're saying, well, you don't believe, you're not willing to say that you have to believe Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, citing from uh, uh, Romans 10, 9. You don't have to believe that for sure to be saved. That's not required. And so my response to them was, a 13-year-old Jewish girl dies at Auschwitz. Uh, are you saying in order to teach at this seminary, I have to be committed to the position that she's in hell because she didn't pray a Christian sinner's prayer? I think that's extraordinarily presumptuous. So I don't, I don't presume to make judgments about what is required in terms of salvation. In terms of ecclesiology is a different matter, and that will depend upon the Christian community that you are a part of. So there are, we generally distinguish between dogma, like essential identifying hallmarks, and then uh, non-dogmatic doctrinal commitments that are distinctive for particular traditions. So if you want to be a Baptist and you want to be a full member, well, you can't be infant baptized and refuse to be water baptized as an adult in most Baptist churches. It's not a dogma, but it is essential for participation in that community. If you want to be a Catholic, you got to accept the dogmas, let's say, of Mary. Uh, but a Catholic is not going to say you have to believe in the assumption of Mary in order to be a Christian. So we do have those distinctions. Uh, above and beyond that, I'll just say one more thing. And you can feel free to just press in on any point you want. But uh, we have the distinction between doctrine, right doctrine, and between right practice. And I like to say, I like to give people this, this scenario. So during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, there was um, a Muslim named Abaye Diagni who worked with the UN peacekeeping forces. And every day he left the compound and risked his own life in order to load Tutsis up into his UN Jeep and bargain them across checkpoints of Hutus with machetes, using jokes and cigarettes to bargain them through these checkpoints to get them into the hotel, the famous Hotel Rwanda, uh, where they could be safe. And he did that for three weeks until he was blown up in an explosion. That's Mabai Dagni, the Muslim. And then you have Elizafan Nukatarama, who was an Adventist Christian pastor. And he led, like when his Tutsi congregate, he was Hutu, when his Tutsi congregants contacted him secretly saying, we are hiding here in this complex, please come and help us. Instead, he sent in Hutu militias and they massacred several thousand people. If you have the choice to stand before the throne of God with the life and legacy of the Muslim who acted rightly or the Christian who acted heinously, which do you choose? And I, I've asked Christians that for more than 10 years. I've never had anybody say, I had people refuse to answer and never had anybody say they'd go with the Genesis Adair who had good Christian theology. So I'll just, I'll just throw that out there. That's really interesting. I am, um, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think I've always, I mean, I said this um, right from the very get-go of the podcast, like if, if God is real and there is a kind of a, a judgment and I'm standing for the throne of God, I'll definitely be saying like, I really looked for you. Like I searched as much as I could and I was asking all the questions and just trying to work out like, where are you? Because I was very much brought up with going, Here, here's God, like almost like on, on, a, on a plate, clearly labeled God and um, realized the plate was empty. I was like, oh, okay, I need to go find this, this thing, God, that I believed. Hmm. 
I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Okay, so I, I guess then for you, um, what would you? So would you say that the resurrection then was a was a literal historical event? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I certainly believe that, uh, and I believe it has excellent historical attestation. Now, I don't believe. I mean, I, we could talk First Corinthians fifteen in particular. I think is very significant there. I think that you can. I mean, James Dunn in Jesus Remembered, I mean, he was no conservative Christian. And he argues in James and Jesus Remembered that you can date 1 Corinthians 15, three to seven into months after the death of Jesus. And so what we have there is a creedal confession circulating within Jerusalem within months of the death of Jesus that talks about the atoning death of Jesus for the sins of people, for him coming back to life, being raised again, and then being seen by people and then we have to explain among them his own brother, James, being included within that list, several other apostles who apparently their, their whole minds and lives were changed and they came to believe he was raised from the dead. And even this greatest persecutor, Paul, who appends himself to his own expanded version of the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Those are the kinds of historical facts that are quite fascinating. And I think certainly would provide a good historical ground to conclude that a resurrection had in fact occurred. I don't think, however, that most Christians simply believe in the resurrection because of that. They believe in Christianity for all sorts of reasons, but I do believe that you can accept it on historical grounds. Okay, yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And and can I mean, I'm assuming you can, but um, you seem very open-minded. But um, can you can you see why people would not find that enough to be convinced of the resurrection just purely based on that historical reasoning? Well, people disagree reasonably all the time about things. And there are all sorts of reasons that a person could find it hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead based upon that evidence. They may believe, for example, that they have independent evidence to question the existence of God or to question whether miracles are possible or to believe that the amount and distribution of evil in the world makes it unreasonable to believe there's a God. I mean, there could be all sorts of reasons. Now, Christians often, of course, and not just Christians, we often, we all tend to do this, they would often impute the the character of people that, that, that disagreed with them. And so it's very easy to say, the reason you disagree with me is because you just don't want to accept the facts. You're sinfully obstinate or something like that. And that is a possibility, right? All of us, we can have our biases and we can be unreasonable. But I think you have to be very careful about just assuming that at the outside. I think you need to actually listen to why people are skeptical. And it may be at the end of the day, that two people can look at the same evidence and it just strikes them differently. One person ends up finding themselves with belief and the other without belief. Belief itself is not something volitional. It's not controlled by our will. I don't will to believe something. I can want to believe something. I can wish it is true. 
And that may eventually indirectly form me to come to hold that belief, but I don't have direct volitional control over my beliefs. So I think we have to go a little easy on each other when we end up disagreeing. Yeah, I mean, this, this is really, really powerful stuff. So a, a big a big thing that I say quite often is, um, I don't think I have control to decide what does and does not convince me. Um, I just don't, like, I would love to believe that Jesus is real and the resurrection is true and, and these sorts of things. But the the things that I've come up against in my head and in my journey and just, yeah, personal experience and historical reasons and all sorts have brought me to a place where I don't believe it currently. It doesn't mean I'm not looking and searching and asking questions and stuff. But, um, and then it's kind of, I mean, I'm not saying you're saying this, but there's a massive sway of Christians who would say, you know, if you do not believe in the resurrection, even metaphorically, then you've got some serious issues and you're you are not going to be you basically you aren't included with us like there isn't there's there's might be like this big group of christians that you know might have protestants and catholics and all sorts of different sorts of christians within this group but actually because you don't believe these core tenants you, you aren't in and it's this it's this real hard message that a lot of people that listen to this podcast and i i speak to have been extraordinarily hurt because they have come to a realization that they don't believe and they've had nowhere to turn at all and they've gone through this journey where they've literally gone i i am up the creek without a paddle and i've got no way of actually kind of navigating here i'm just lost and i'm just going to try and they've actually you know i think this is where a lot of this sort of um negative rhetoric comes from online especially especially from atheists and 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 ex-believers because an easy defense is a negative offense quite often like we we will negatively throw out words and throw out phrases and criticisms upon christianity because of how we've been attacked so we can just pretend we're okay and throw something out we, we can feel much better much more quickly um so it's, it's really interesting to kind of hear you hear you talking like this because I, I honestly don't think there are many people who have these sorts of thoughts out there i mean have, do you do, do you have different sort of experience than christianity these days uh, it, it depends what kind of Christian community one finds. There are many churches, I think, that are very welcoming of of questioning. I mean, for example, like there's um, certain mainline church traditions that that they are not threatened questioning. They're much more familiar with it. So evangelicals, there's been a spate of books among evangelicals in the last years about doubt is okay and questioning is okay and faith doesn't have to be quote-unquote certain. Those are not new discoveries for many other Christians. So, for example, uh, there's a mainline equivalent curriculum. And my mainline, I mean, like prod, uh, Presbyterian or, or Methodist, more liberal churches in, in theological orientation, Episcopalian, maybe in North America, equivalent of Anglican. Uh, and, and so those churches, they've had their equivalent of the Alpha Course for years. This one equivalent is called Living the Questions, which sort of embodies this idea that... that um, they're, they're not afraid of, of having questions. So I, I think every tradition has strengths and weaknesses. Now the living the questions tradition, sometimes the weakness is that nobody ever lands anywhere. I mean, sometimes you do have to land somewhere, uh, but that certainly is a nice counterbalance to some of the more conservative views that you have to have everything kind of nailed down. So um, yeah, I was gonna say something else, but um, it escapes me. No, it's cool. It's, um, it, it's, it's really helpful the same. I think there's this, it's a strange fascination that I have with um, with asking questions and delving into these sorts of conversations. And more often than not, you, you kind of feel like that you hit a brick wall very quickly with somebody because you're trying to ask them, you know, kind of like how, how do you kind of account for um, people like me or who've been on similar journeys who have, you know, I was I was literally leading, um, it would definitely involve with leadership within a church um, 
when I started having my problems and obviously had to step down from that and kind of went through this whole process of um um, of of deconstructing to the point where I am now, which I'd call myself a, an, an an agnostic or potentially an agnostic atheist, depending on how you spin it. Um, it's just a really interesting sort of journey because I can't, I just can't see myself going back to a conservative Christianity at any point. And um, I think I'd definitely struggle to go back to any Christianity from what I've uncovered so far. Um, but I think there are so many really interesting areas that, that could um, open up new doors that I've not thought about before. So I mean, a big one I mentioned quite often on on, on this show is um, is the um, is the essentially the, the the argument C.S. Lewis has in his book Miracles, the um, argument from reason, essentially. Um, how how do you um, view sort of those sorts of kind of like uh, philosophical arguments as well as potentially logic? Do you think they have quite a good sway within convincing people? Well, there the language often historically is theistic proof, and so the idea of a theistic proof would be an argument which is logically valid, probably deductive and has premises that no rational person could deny. And if you want a theistic proof that meets that standard, you'll be disappointed. So I think people sort of set themselves up for failure when they think we have to look for theistic proofs of that kind. But there are all sorts of theistic evidences or arguments that I think are of some weight and will persuade some people and not others. I think various arguments from reason, as you've referred to, are among those that are quite compelling. I, so the problem, of course, is that in, in a naturalistic universe, uh, if we are evolved with uh, cognitive faculties that are aimed at survival rather than production of true beliefs, then we could, then we could, we undermine our ground to have any confident knowledge. The problem there, um, and this is, of course, what the naturalist will reply, is that we have a good reason to assume that more likely than not, all things being equal, more adaptive beliefs will be tend to be true. And the whole question is whether we have grounds to accept that. or And, and one of the counterbalances to that or the rebuttals is, but, but we can think of all sorts of scenarios in which false beliefs are adaptive. So, for example... If I'm, uh, if I'm out with a friend and then I'm coming home at night and I think that I'm the toughest guy in the neighborhood, but I'm really not, I'm a weakling. But because I think I'm the toughest guy, I kind of stride along like this and I, I think I'm really tough. And because people see the vibes I'm giving off, the guy that was going to otherwise mug me doesn't mug me. Then what that means is that my false belief contributed to my survival. Or uh, I might be going to the Toastmasters Club and I'm actually a very poor speaker. But because I have a false confidence in my abilities, I speak with more, with more bravado and confidence than otherwise I would have. And I end up producing a better speech than I would have had I had a true belief about my capacities. And we can begin to give examples like that where we show that in fact, false beliefs can be sometimes or maybe often more adaptive than true beliefs. And what that leads us with in the terms of a dilemma is that if our cognitive faculties were only designed to produce adaptive beliefs, you might not. You might say, okay, we're not. We don't have a ground to believe that they are thereby uh, likely false. But you could say it's inscrutable to use Planck's language here, so that we just don't know whether our beliefs are true or not. It's only if you believe that we were designed with cognitive faculties to produce largely true beliefs that we have a ground or reason to accept them as true. And so that's the, the argument. So of course there are rebuttals and one of them is a theistic lies rebuttal is to say, yeah, but if you're a theist, you don't know that God isn't lying to you for some greater purpose and which is really Descartes evil demon reheated. 
So these things go back and forth and some people are persuaded by those arguments and some people are not. Uh, I think it's a good argument myself. I, I think that arguments for moral reason are even perhaps stronger. So, so the idea that we can grasp moral facts about the world, um, it's not clear to me what, what evolutionary advantage there is per se to accurately grasping moral facts through a moral perceptual ability. And yet it seems to me we clearly have a moral perceptual ability. We can just look at a state of affairs, uh, someone being harmed and see that it's wrong and know that it's wrong. We can look at another state of affairs of a person being helped or aided and see that it is morally a good thing. And it seems that this is just shows that just as we sense perceive the world through our vision, we morally perceive the world through our moral perception. And it seems to me that those cognitive faculties are best explained in a theistic view. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm not going to push back at the moment. I, I just find it really interesting hearing your views on this. To be honest, um, I was going to take a slight kind of change the subject and kind of um, ask you, kind of from this position that you hold, um, how do you how do you engage in kind of like your personal walk with God? Then do you how do you read the Bible and how do you pray and, and what sort of things do you do to kind of have that connection with with God? Well, I I do a daily devotional. So uh, my devotions have always been in the evenings rather than in the mornings. Just I was raised that way that we did our evening family devotion. So I brought my daughter up in our family doing an evening devotion and I'll, I'll read the Bible and I'll read um, usually some particular work to go along with that. I've recently been back into William Barclay, who's a wonderful mid 20th century English writer and, and popularizer a contemporary of CS Lewis. So a very good expositor overall of, of New Testament stuff. And so you get, it's not like your typical devotional. It's very thin in content. He gets into quite a bit of depth. And um, so I've, I've been always been a more cerebral person. Uh, when it comes to church, I, I will sing and that, but I tend to prefer courses, although our church has a mix. I'm sorry, I, I prefer hymns rather than courses. Uh, our church has a mix of that. But I've never been a very emotional person who enjoys the singing that much. Uh, I have been more cerebral for me, thinking is as much a spiritual discipline and exercise as anything else. And I think sometimes as Christians, we have to be careful about sort of placing particular expectations, say that to be a good Christian, you have to have X, Y, or Z. I grew up Pentecostal, and that was a very emotional, experiential tradition to be raised in. And it was a little difficult for me to have to think, okay, to be spiritual, to be close to God is to speak in tongues really loudly in this community. And to get very emotional at the altar after church. So I, I never quite fit in there, never spoke in tongues, that's for sure. Um, so it was a relief to find that there, there is a tradition where I am at, more at home. And I think sometimes a lot of the struggles Christians have are because they have not been exposed to enough different communities and find the one that they can really take root in. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I, I, would have, I would have viewed it before as it doesn't really matter whether you're comfortable or not it's more about what is the right community like what is the one that is adhering to the word as closely as possible and therefore the way that you outwork that um matches those 
truths more effectively. Um, but I think you know that that sort of re- that sort of reflection that actually there are quite a sway of different sorts of expressions of Christianity, and therefore there is something you will probably you know in- engage with on a more personal level. Um, you know, like I know I know of a church that pretty, pretty much don't do any singing at all and just do painting and drawing and dance and stuff. And um, you know, I've got some friends that absolutely love that sort of thing. It's it's really interesting how people can you know find the thing that helps them express themselves the most. Um, and I guess kind of like putting it on the other side then, putting it onto the flip side, could could you see how, um, I mean, potentially not, but is, is there any way that you could see how kind of your, your ideas of morality and worth and um, how you view the world and things could be could be viewed within a completely naturalistic framework? Or, or, and, and, and it, I guess if not, what are the things that when you kind of try and, you know, overlay that onto a naturalistic framework that kind of just put like a big cross in it and go, well, this doesn't fit and this doesn't fit. Like, do you have like three or four of those things that just do not make sense upon a naturalistic framework? Depends what we mean by natural or naturalistic. So typically when I would use the term naturalism, I would say it's a view that ties that which exists to the object of study of the natural sciences. Um, And that's a fairly traditional way of defining naturalism. And I think if you have that way, then, then you really do have, you really run up against some problems because I don't think the natural sciences deal with certain things that are very important to human experience and flourishing. Moral value is an obvious one. So science can describe things, but science cannot deal with normative moral value. It's beyond the purview of, of natural science. And in, in my view, intrinsically so, that, that attempts to naturalize morality are just mistaken and misguided at the outset. They're just a base form of reductionism so so that we do have something like a life well lived or intrinsic moral value or the intrinsic value of flourishing and these are rich metaphysical concepts and i don't think that you can sustain those in the thin soil of naturalism if it is simply describing reality in terms of that which is studied by natural sciences you need to have something more you can call that something more naturalism if you want to uh, I'll just leave it. I mean, but you can do that. But but that's something more would have to be something like, well, there's also intrinsic value, like maybe a platonic understanding. So there is some absolute good. Uh, and that good is exemplified within creatures and states of affairs under certain conditions in the same way that the property of blue or the shape of roundness can be exemplified in various concrete objects. And And then you could say, okay, so now we recognize on that view why it is intrinsically good not to do this or or why this is an intrinsic disvalue. Let's say the state of being tortured is intrinsically a disvalue and the state of showing compassion has intrinsic value. And you can begin to understand that with respect to a richer metaphysical framework. But I don't think that you'll get that in naturalism in the way I defined it. So then the, the real question is this, well, if you're gonna open the door to a broader, richer framework of something like platonic values or goods or norms, then how much more should we open the door? And you might be getting at some point very close to theism. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. 
Um, just help me, tell me know if, if I'm if I'm right in this. So Plato and this Platonic view that you're talking of is is almost like um, saying that's you know uh, I see this table in front of me that my computer's resting on because there is a perfect version of that up in heaven. Whereas someone like Aristotle would say something along the lines of um, I call this a table because that's the the sort of framework upon which I have named things. So I group things like trees together when actually trees in and of themselves are just atoms collated together, but we, we call it tree because it's what gives it a sort of framework. Is that is that is that correct? Not quite. I mean, it sounds like the way you described Aristotle, he's more of a nominalist. Okay. So where we, we, these are just names, which that wasn't Aristotle's view. Aristotle's view was that there are these things we call universals, but they only exist insofar as they are instantiated or exemplified in concrete objects. They don't exist abstractly apart from that whereas Plato did believe they existed abstractly apart from that. Two, two things, two quick points as to why one would find something like Platonism attractive apart from the moral reasons I've just argued, which is that I think a reductionistic naturalism is, is inadequate to explain the richness of human experience. And those two additional factors are, first of all, attribute agreement. So we recognize that particular things can have the same attributes. So you can have a red book and you can have a red hat and they both seem to have this property of being red. What is that common thing they share? Redness. Well, well, where is that? Or what is that? And Plato would say, well, that's the universal that's exemplified or instantiated in these two concrete objects. Another place where you really see it is in mathematics. So the number one, well, it seems like that's a real thing. Uh, it certainly has properties and you can talk about it and do things with it, but it's not a concrete thing. It's, it's not like the number one is here on my chalkboard and not on yours. Rather, what is on my chalkboard is a conventional inscripturation that represents symbolically the number one, but the number one is in no place. And if you have a realist platonic view of mathematics, as I believe most mathematicians do, then you have to recognize, well, there are these things called numbers out there. So how do we explain those? So that's one thing is attribute agreement. I guess um, the other thing is, is uh, abstract reference. So we can talk about something like justice. We say that this society lacks justice. Well, what is that thing that is lacking in this society to which we are referring? It seems like we're actually discussing something seriously here. And so what is it? And one explanation is that there is this abstract universal called justice, which can be exemplified to varying degrees in, in different societies. And so we want to have a more perfect exemplification of justice in our society. That's one way to explain how the language is being used. So I think that that's a, you could take a platonic view. Now, a the Christian theist often will take those accounts, but they'll identify them with God, right? So that they'll be part of God. So instead of platonic universals, divine thoughts, right? That the, the color red, the number one, the sense of justice are all somehow rooted in God's nature. And that's a parsimonious way, I think, to explain this richer fabric while invoking the single concept of God, which can also explain a lot of other things, such as the reliability of our cognitive faculties, our moral perceptual faculties that we talked about, and many other things as well. Yeah, this is an an, an entire new thing for me that I'm yeah exploring and thinking about because it's um it's just not something that I've ever come across before. Like you know, 
Plato and Aristotle and stuff I've heard I've heard of you know like Plato's cave and things like that like I've kind of had these sorts of throwaway lines that I've read in books I'm like oh, I wonder what that is and C.S. Lewis kind of like a, a, almost alludes to it in in the in the in the silver chair when he's talking about them being stuck in the cave and seeing these people dancing on the walls and stuff and it's just this uh it's just it's, it's interesting how it is seeped within our culture and within our mindsets and within our thinking but we just don't really seem to learn about it anymore um i don't know it's 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 it's, it's frustrating is honestly what it is like i wish i i wish i knew more um right right back at the beginning before i was being forced down any path or just told this is true like i wish i could have really investigated these things more thoroughly um do you do you have any sorts of like good resources or or um books or anything that people could could um that you could like point people to to kind of and and me um to to look at kind of plato and aristotle and really get to grips with these sorts of things any good recommendations uh, in terms of philosophy, I think find some good histories of philosophy. That's a great way to get a tour. Um, I mean, I've always been a fan of Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy, even though it's very much dated to the mid 20th century. It reflects his, I think, reductionistic British analytic philosophy of the mid 20th century. But nonetheless, every philosophy has weakness. Every history has weaknesses, right? It's all told from perspective. And that'd be like a great one to start. So so I would recommend something like that. Um, some good good books that that go through basic questions like um, Thomas Nagel back in the late 80s. I actually used this as a textbook once many years ago. Um, what does it all mean? I think that was the name of his book. So very light, winsome, breezy read, but actually really deep and a lot of questions. Each, each chapter is a different question. Rutledge, um, one of my favorite in terms of basic introductions to philosophy is Rutledge they publish a series. So one by Michael Lux is L-O-U-X. His last name is called Metaphysics, Introduction to Metaphysics, uh, generally accessible to the average reader. Robert Audi has one in that series on epistemology. Uh, Robert Lycan, I think, has the philosophy of language. And you could just go through and build uh, sort of a broad philosophical education just by reading those general introduction texts. So I think there's a lot of great resources out there. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. I think the, these days we seem to listen to just podcasts or YouTube videos or Twitter, and these things aren't helpful in actually kind of going away and really understanding what what is going on and why people are saying these things and what that base is that we're kind of building from because we like to just have these sort of weird houses that we've made, but actually there, there's some foundation there that we need to really understand what is this rooted on, uh, which is super helpful. And yeah, so I'll just I, jump, I need to, jump in on there on one quick yeah. thing. So. You know, I've been writing this book on biblical violence. It's it's probably going to be 100,000 words, so close to 300 pages. And somebody on Twitter actually asked me to summarize it in a tweet, right? And said, you know, can you just give me the gist? And I'm like, so you want me to summarize in like 280 characters? And says, no, you know, you can, uh, the book will be out in two months. He's like, oh, of course he wants to sell me his book. Like, what are you kidding me, man? It's like, I spent months working on this. Well, actually, uh four weeks at this point, but it'll be another month before I'm done. But I've spent 12 years thinking about it. And people just have this sense of entitlement that that not only do they not want to pay for anything, but they want it packaged into 280 characters. I mean, I think this is crazy. Yeah, it's 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 just insane. I, I even find it with just podcast, you know, like just a 20 minute podcast on some weird topic or I think people just want to have like the they want to just scrape the very top of something and just have a general gist and then move on with their lives and see if that gist kind of takes them anywhere. Like mm. we just don't we just don't seem to want to uh, go away, 
read something in depth, reflect on it and see how it affects us to our core and go, has this changed something? And if it has changed something, what does it change? We just like to almost, um, I don't know, just reinforce our opinions and just hear like, hear, I mean, again, it's, it's this classic straw man thing, isn't it? I think we do that all the time. Um, and especially yeah. in the 21st century, you know, 2021 seems to be a crazy year already, but you know, we're, we're still so interested in just having our own little, little uh, snappets and, and, and snips of, of things here and there. It's bizarre. Um, on, on, on the whole book front, right? So you, I, I saw you have a conversation with, um, with Dan Barker a little while ago and, um, I think you must have mentioned like four or five books you've written there. Like, how do you, how do you write and get through so many books? Like, how do you do it? Uh, some people have gifts that I don't have. I will say this, that I, I watched, um, a documentary yesterday on Netflix on speed cubers who are, you know, do the Rubik's cube in competitions. And uh, the, the, like the, the one that they all want to win is the three by three, which is the original Rubik's cube. Uh, and the people that are doing it, they're finishing it in six and a half seconds in competition, six and a half seconds. And they have to learn like 300 algorithms, memorize them and know them by muscle memory in order to, to hope to finish these things. And then they show these guys, like this, this one guy, he's like a savant, he's this amazing guy, a 17 year old from America, who's now the up and comer. And he won the seven by seven, six by six, five by five, four by four, but didn't win the three by three. And he also won the one-handed competition. So you can also do it in one hand. I will never, I mean, should I, I live for eternity? I will never have those abilities, right? But I do have certain capacities and abilities. So some people will never be able to write a book. And certainly some people will never be able to write a book in six or seven weeks. I do have certain abilities that other people don't have as well, but we all have strengths and weaknesses. Now, in terms of beyond that, I mean, thinking through like taking notes all the time and thinking about it, uh, part of the process then is, is taking the notes down. But I mean, I find that I just kind of sit down and when it's ready, I just go and I just write. Now I do have to recognize that for every book that I finish, there's probably seven or eight books that I never finished. I literally, in the last week or two on my computer, I found a 31,000 word manuscript that I forgot I wrote. To, I could not recall having written that. Um, so that, so that's what that means then is you just, you gotta be doing it all the time. But that's what those guys are with the Rubik's Cube. They always have a cube in their hands, even when they're just walking around and they're twisting it in their hand. So it's something you gotta be committed to, you gotta work at it and then you get better at it. Yeah, lots and lots and lots of practice. I like it. I yeah. like it a lot. Amazing. Okay. Well, I'm sure there's many questions that I could ask that I've forgotten to ask. Um, but is there anything you want to kind of um, you want to chat through or, or mention before we kind of come to an end, uh, Randall? Well, that is uh, that's a huge question. We could talk about anything, but um, I mean, I would say that that uh, Sam, your your whole enterprise here is certainly a, a great one. Um, I like to see what you're doing here that you're really lining up some, this is not a self-reference by the way, you're really lining up some great guests, uh, but I'm, I'm impressed with the people you have, you've had on so far. I've listened to a couple of them, uh, very much enjoyed that. And I, I think that what you're modeling uh, is erratic, dispassionate in, in a good sense and thoughtful, engaged conversation about very important issues. And, and I would commend you for that. I think that that's just the way forward. Um, when people say that, uh, well, there are two things we don't talk about, which is religion and politics. I think that you show 
uh, the opposite is true. In fact, we should be talking about religion. We should be talking about theology and theism, and we shouldn't be threatened by disagreement with one another. Uh, in fact, we can, it's only when you begin to talk to other people that you realize they're not so scary after all, and that we can actually reasonably and charitably disagree with one another. So in your own little corner here of the podcast universe, I think you're doing some important stuff. Thanks, bro. I really appreciate that. It's um, it's a strange world, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'm really finding that I, I'm changing through these conversations and I hope it's uh, hope it's helping at least a listener somewhere uh, think things through a little bit more, which is, yeah, which is the aim after all. Definitely. Randall, before we before we come to a final close then, like how would people get in touch with you if they wanted to read something of yours? What, what would be the book out of the many that you've written that they could go away and read? Yeah. Tell us, tell us about you for a minute. You can find me online at uh, randallrouser.com. Uh, so R-A-N-D-A-L-R-A-U-S-E-R.com. And that's I've been blogging for 12 years or so uh, on Twitter as well. My most recent book, apart from the one I'm writing now, is Conversations with My Inner Atheist, which came out last year, which is a journey through 25 questions that I have with an inner voice of questioning and doubt. So it very much embodies the discipline of hard questioning of one's own beliefs. And one thing that I'll, I'll say at the beginning of that book that I point out is that there's this old saying in the law that when you're cross-examining a witness, you never ask a question if you don't already know the answer because you don't want the trial to go sideways. Well, I say in this book, we set that wisdom aside. We ask questions even if we don't know how to answer them because they are important questions. And that's true. Like I'm, I very much, I came to multiple questions in that book, not sure how I would address them, including questions like, what do you do with Torah? Uh, God's you know, wonderful law where it includes violent retributive actions like stoning people to death, which you would consider a moral atrocity if it, you ever read about it occurring today. How do you process that? How do you process the fact that Mary was probably 13, maybe 12 years old when she gave birth to Jesus? Um, there are several reasons why we, we have that as a reasonable inference. I mean, girls in, in Israel in the first century, on average, marrying about 13 young boys or young men, 18, so around there. So we would not think that's appropriate today. So how do you process that? And multiple other questions. So, I mean, I think that we should not be afraid to wrestle with hard questions. And if that ends up leading us down a track we did not anticipate, I think you know this very well. If it ends up leading you down a track you did not anticipate, well, you can't control that. But I think what you simply have to do is say, I'm going to seek the truth wherever I can find it and and let the truth will out overall. Amen. <laughs> Completely agree. Amazing. It's been, it's been great to talk to you, Randall. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Sam. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.